Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each day online can be a balancing act for parents. They want their children to safely explore the digital world, but also want to protect the precious offline moments they enjoy together. That's why the YouTube Kids app offers families a safer and simpler online video experience for children. As well as allowing parents to set limits on screen time, it also allows parents to choose a content library for their child based on age, or start from scratch and handpick videos and channels for their child to watch. To find out more, download the app today. Search YouTube Kids. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Mark P. Mills, who is a physicist, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of a new book called The Crowd Revolution. Now, Mark, I think it's fair to say we're living in a fairly gloomy economic moment. There's a lot of concerns about inflation and a sort of generalised fear that we thought we might have escaped economic catastrophe in the wake of COVID, but it looks like it might be creeping back on us. And yet your book is a ray of optimistic light on the world, I'd say, because you think that a roaring 20s is going to come about thanks to the cloud revolution, which is a technological revolution. Can you explain to us what the cloud revolution is and why it will set the world on fire? Well, thanks for having me, Freddie. It's a pleasure to be uh, joining somebody from uh, my homeland, so to speak, since I grew up in one of Her Majesty's colonies in Canada <laughs> and went to the Queen's University. So come on, this is... Oh, right. <laughs> I think I can summarize it as one is wont to do these days with the subtitle of my book. So it's, <laughs> I mean, you know, how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom in a roaring 2020s. So my my optimism is not naive in the sense that I... <laughs> Politicians and governments have never lost their capacity to do damage to our economy. Occasionally, we get lucky and they stimulate what engineers, innovators do. And get, you know, I won't say get out of the way, which is not an unfair thing to say. We do have policies that are helpful, right? They can stimulate growth by allowing markets to function, allow innovators to take risks, all those things. So what I've done in my book is look at you know what's going on in sort of... Um, the underbelly of all the innovation across all the different spheres, that is in materials and machines and devices, communications. In addition to that, the feature of the cloud is a different beast, and we all know it's a different beast, so it's incohate sense. And it's a infrastructure that's profoundly different than anything that's existed in history. It's accelerating everything, but at different velocities. So first we should say, what is the cloud, right? The cloud, I dare say everybody uses the cloud, pretty much everybody, including grandparents and children every day. When you Zoom, you're using the cloud. It's not just a communications medium. There's a lot of other functions going on. When you do e-commerce, when you order food by DoorDash or whatever your preferred you know, cloud provider is, when you map things out on your smartphone, talking to Alexa or Siri or any other AI-enabled agent, all those functions occur not because I'm communicating from A to B, but because in between the two communications endpoints, there's this massive physical infrastructure of computational capabilities 
doing things, figuring things out, making estimates, not just calculations about what I want, but making recommendations. Here's the house you might like. Here's another provider. The cloud is different from the internet as the internet was different from the telephone. Right? They are mm. similar, but very different. The reason I'm is optimistic is there's more going on. I mean, we see it every day in the news. There's always some new breakthrough announced, some exciting invention. So what I try to do is map out a taxonomy, a, a pattern of what this all means, because we've got the metaverse and virtual reality. We've got you know, biologically compatible computing and sensors, supply chains that are being enabled by new kinds of tracking. So all, all of it is feels incohate. I think there's a pattern to it, but these patterns, you know, you, you know history better, probably better than I do, but history doesn't repeat it rhymes. Rhymes are about patterns. The pattern today is very much like the pattern of the 1920s. In the 1920s, convergence of technologies ignited the 20th century boom, the biggest expansion of wealth and well-being in all of human history. Mm. Not without problems along the way. Humans are really good at creating problems, but, but nonetheless, everyone in the Western world is far better off in terms of their physical health and their buying power today than they were 80 years ago. You mentioned the metaverse. Of course, there's been a lot of that in the news recently with the, with the news that Facebook is changing its name to Meta. Um, <laughs> do you think that's unhelpful of Facebook to sort of seize something that could have been bigger and broader than just Mark Zuckerberg's fevered imagination? I know. It's really hard to agree with Mark Zuckerberg about anything. <laughs> I mean, come on. He doesn't make it easy. No, I mean, but here's what I agree with him about. I have a, we all have opinions about Facebook because it's such a beast. It's a business. And it's not a beast of a business, I should add, because of something he did to force it on people. It, it created a utility that people liked. Otherwise, they wouldn't have used it. That's an obvious fact. And set aside whether the word metaverse is a word anybody's going to like or use. We don't, corporate titans don't often get to choose how the world will see the names for things. You know, a smartphone is not a phone. Nobody uses it to talk. So mm. why do we call it a smartphone? I mean, people maybe of a certain age still talk on the phone. <laughs> anyway, he's right about this profound transformation that's just becoming possible. People have talked about augmented reality and virtual reality for a long time. It's not a new idea. It's actually been in the engineering and physics community for 50 years. So how do you augment reality? What does that mean? Well, we know what it means, right? A prosthetic device is an augmented reality for a, for a human in a sort of ham-handed way. It's what a wheelchair is. These are augmentations. In computing language, we can augment an image. We can augment a video. We can make it virtual because we're only doing it in quote, virtual space right? the, in the, inside the computer. But what's happened, in, and what I map out in my book, is not what people invent today. The re revolutions in the near future come from what people invented 20 years ago, maybe longer, but just is now becoming useful. By useful, that means practical, economical, you know, reliable, all those things. Mass-produced. Mass-produced matters. I mean, whether it's software that's mass-produced and useful or a car. Cars invented, were invented 30 years before they became useful in the 20s. It took a long time. Augmented and virtual reality is a big deal. So if, if I said, okay, it's in the 90s and we've got an internet and you can do virtual mail, email. People thought it was a pretty big deal, but that didn't change the world, email. Pretty quickly migrated to e-commerce and all the other social platforms we have. 
but it was a, I'll call it a clunky interface. You're typing into a computer, looking at a planar screen. We'd all agree it's much better than we had with snail mail, so-called, for most things, but it's still kind of clunky. Virtual and augmented reality is really difficult to do. It requires a lot of computing horsepower, a huge bandwidth that has to be cheap, accessible, but three-dimensional representations of things that are useful and real, not just for us to talk to each other virtually. You know, to have the Princess Leia Star Wars thing appear over your smartphone be pretty cool. Well, it's not crazy. It's actually possible to do that. It's just expensive and difficult. That's kind of cool, but what its relevance is is not in the social media, which is easiest. It's next easier in commerce, obviously, be nice to tour a house in true virtual reality rather than have mm. to go see my apartment I want to rent or a house I want to buy. But in, in engineering and in science and discovery and making things, if I can do a test of a drug in virtual reality, if I can test a new airframe for an air taxi in virtual reality first, I can accelerate its design, accelerate the testing that's required for safety very substantially. That's a big deal. People have imagined, by people, I mean engineers and entrepreneurs for a long time, that I'd like to do that. Very difficult. If you're a surgeon and you would like to practice a difficult surgery on the patient, which would be us, wouldn't mm. it be nice if the practice could happen on a simulacrum of your body in virtual reality that was hyper-realistic and the surgeon could then try out different approaches first before doing it on you? Yes. That's not only possible, but there are several firms that do this kind of simulation training and practice for surgeons today. It's beginning, it will expand in all the different domains. So Zuckerberg is right, it's a big deal. It'll come to you know, the social media stuff first and what does that jacket look like on me? And I actually see myself like I'm in a 3D mirror. That's kind of nice, it makes shopping more interesting and fun, but that's the least of it. Is it just because I'm a sort of boring fogey before my time that this all fills me with dread? I mean, when you talked about touring the house virtually, I thought, well, if you tour a house virtually, why do you need a house at all? You could just sort of sit on a sofa all day living in your yeah, amazingly yeah. nice virtual house. Yeah, I know. Doesn't this hasten a kind of spiritual collapse? <laughs> well... Not to, to get too deeply into this spiritual and the theological domains, but... Uh, I went there. Let you keep going. Yeah, I know. Well, I think JP, not just Pope John Paul, but St. John Paul, was one of the ones that early on observed that using the internet, and using he predates social media, but using that medium to talk to people, to preach, to evangelize, was no different than using the book, printing it with Gutenberg, or using radio and television, or... And he likened it to standing up on a hill, the Sermon on the Mount, so you could get more projection of what you want to say. So mm. I tend to look at things that way as opposed to the dystopian side. But look, listen, you're not, you're, not a, <laughs> you're not being a fogey before your time. One of the things that is always true about humans is we find ways to do unpleasant things with all the technologies that we invent. Nothing is a pure good. I mean, that's where free will comes from. If we, <laughs> the first technology was probably a sharpened stick to gather food. Mm. We know what people did with those sharpened sticks other than gather food. This has been true throughout all of history. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, great Canadian psychiatrist and, and researcher, when he coined the phrase, it became famous, the medium is the message. He wasn't purely dystopian about what television was doing then. He was pointing out what its downsides can be. That requires human action, free will, sensible governance, let's say, which is a challenge by itself, to think about how to put guardrails around challenging technologies and their effects. But mm. yeah, sure, people, 
there are a lot of people who do things and behave in ways that are we don't like, and they'll yes. always find ways to do it. When the camera was first invented, it's great reading the history of what intellectuals thought and lawyers thought about the invention of a commonly available camera. It was viewed in a dystopian way. It would destroy the legal profession, invade people's privacies, utterly wreak havoc on social commerce and comity of life. And indeed, yeah. it has done some of that. How right they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of people like their video messages and their pictures of their birthday of their firstborn and but yeah that's true i should add i'm very grateful to be talking to you over video yeah right i mean now. sure i mean there's pornography on on video and not you know conversations about intellectual stuff like we're having yeah, like yeah. this is just to use the technical term that gen z uses it's no duh i mean people, yeah. <laughs> people i'm not naive about what people do that's stupid and bad but here's the thing that bothers me if we only focus on that and people focus when the car was invented about all of its problems. And it had manifold problems and still does. Cars kill people, right? Like this is another no-duh. But the unleashing of the kinds of freedoms for humanity that personal mobility created, it in many ways is unprecedented in history. It's why so many people around the world who don't have a car and billions don't have cars today want a car because of these incredible social humanistic features. It's a really net good for humanity. It has side effects. It can create pollution. People can wreak havoc, as happens episodically. They can be literally used as weapons, which is we've seen terrorists do. Would you ban the car? Some people would. Some people would be much happier with a horse and buggy. A lot of humanity would be much worse off in the days of the horse and buggy. I mean, you'd say that technology is morally neutral, but it enables human progress, which is good. Yeah, I mean... It's sort of simplistic to say it's morally neutral because I think being human is to be technological. Humans are wired to be technological. It's not like it's an exogenous thing that mm. we discover technology and we were, we were otherwise not going to use technology. We, we're wired to invent amplifiers for what we do, for our minds, for our legs, for our arms. You know, we, we make cars because we made the wheel. We invented all these. Humans invent because they're wired to invent. So it's mm. not morally neutral because humans are not morally neutral. So we invent things for bad reasons and good reasons. So I, I would say it's morally integrated as opposed to neutral with humanity, which to your point sort of gets to the issue that's I talk about a bit in my book about education and how do we raise people, raise young, young men and women to be a moral human beings, good people. This challenge is no different today than it's ever been. We have different tools for for talking and raising people, and the tools can be used for, you know, <laughs> not good things. But I think the kind of tools that exist in the cloud to, we'll say, evangelize common sense are very, very powerful. If you look at some of the most popular podcasts, I mean, you're, you're a very popular, famous podcaster. Look at the voice amplification you have. <laughs> I like it. If technology is enabling that delusion, I like it. <laughs> we talked a lot about, well, during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about how COVID is, is an accelerator and it's accelerating yeah. trends. One of these trends clearly was the move towards the cloud, the move towards yeah. people living very independently of each other and relying more and more on technology. Do you see it as a moment where we've created a substantial shift in that direction? I think history will yet have to judge a lot about what happened because of the COVID lockdowns and the plague that afflicted the world. The historian who comes from your homeland as well, Neil Ferguson, has, has talked and written in his latest book, in fact, 
is an excellent book, book Catastrophes, contexting what the social and political role of this pandemic has been today compared to previous pandemics in modern and old history. Very, it's a very good, interesting way of looking at it. Obviously, some things were very destructive, not just to people's lives physically, deaths and illness, but to businesses. At the same time, it is true, it's functioned like a great accelerator for many activities, like remote working or more importantly, telemedicine. Finally, finally, in most jurisdictions, especially the United States, it was made legal. It was illegal for a doctor to talk to you on Zoom and prescribe anything to sort of do pre-screening before you went to a clinic or hospital room. What an obvious thing to unleash, right? I mean, and I think we'll unleash much more of that. I think it's already obviously unleashed more homeschooling because of the ease of tutoring, but it's also made clear that showing up in person matters. There are some things that don't work well remotely. They just don't work as well. And it's not because the Zoom isn't good. It's because humans are humans. They like to be together for certain things. Sporting events, the second people could go back to a stadium. You've seen the videos. I mean, masses mm. of people. Why didn't they just stay home and go in the metaverse with Zuckerberg? Well, they did both, right? There's still the growth in virtual games is off the charts. So is the hunger for people to go back to stadiums. So that fact sort of informs the whole trajectory of my book that both these things happen. You know, we still use paper and stone and wood in the age of silicon. Well, of course, they have high utility for some things in the real world. So we've had this acceleration. Some of it will, will relax back. The remote working is a good example. This trope that everybody's going to work remotely, the office is dead, I think is just silly. No, it's mm. not dead. It'll be different, be more hybridized. But first of all, the majority of tasks that most people have to do for work can't be done remotely. So it's the elite chattering intelligentsia that are babbling all the stuff about it'll never, we'll never go back to work again. Well, they don't have to. <laughs> people making stuff, delivering stuff, keeping you healthy, have to show up at a place, a building. And that's 80% of jobs. Well, do you think, though, that, I mean, clearly it has so far made the class divide more intense between the sort of the serfs who bring us our stuff and, as you say, the intelligentsia who can sit around gabbing on on video calls. I do think. I think one of the effects is there's an acceleration in three ways. One is it's made it clear what doesn't work well remotely, like delivering your food easily or mm. treating you at a hospital. Just to go, you have to go to the hospital. It's made clear what does work well remotely. There are, there are a lot of jobs. You don't need to be at the office every day. We were migrating in that direction already. That accelerated it. It also served as an x-ray for this, what you call the class divide, where we created this odious phrase, essential jobs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was offended when it started. I remain offended. All jobs are essential. They're part mm. of humans. Most humans like to work, take reward from the jobs when they can. They like to be treated well. They, but most people want, there's a certain intellectual, psychological, and theological value to jobs. It's been well studied. All jobs are essential. Let me, in fact, the jobs that we canceled which are largely entertainment jobs, travel, restaurants, tourism, theater, concerts. Those are actually essential jobs. The nice thing about a modern society is that we have most of our jobs are not related to mere survival. A modern, enjoyable, comfortable society essentially has jobs that are unrelated to mere survival. 
So they're essential. They're essential to our civilization. But we, in effect, have underpaid a lot of the people that are in those jobs. So this is, the x-ray has been not only the comfort of the intelligence, you know, staying at home, remote working in a comfortable house, while everybody else is stuck at crammed in an apartment with their kids or their significant other or whatever. It's not where they want to be all day. They live in an apartment or a small house. They want to get out. So we've, we've x-rayed that divide. I think in net-net, it'll be helpful because it should have been x-rayed. And I would say one of the things that I believe will happen, and I think this is what wealth does, new technologies generate productivity, which generates wealth. We as a society will be, in fact, we're already being forced to pay more to people in those jobs that we have taken for granted. And we will be able to afford to pay them more because it will be a wealthier society. So obviously one of the great messages I hope comes out of my book is it's a very old adage in economics. Being a physicist, I only get to play economists on podcasts and TV. But you want the pie to expand. More wealth for everybody doesn't solve all problems, but it ameliorates a lot of them. It also gives us the capacity to pay people more. It's what productivity does. So if you make people who have jobs in the service sector where we've underpaid more productive using AI and robots and technology, we can afford to pay those people more because they're inherently more productive. That got accelerated by the great lockdowns and fortunately got accelerated contemporaneous, and this has nothing to do with planning, with a time when those technologies are becoming genuinely useful. You work in a warehouse Warehouses are where they distribute all the stuff, redistribute and arrange them for e-commerce to make life have a little less friction in it. There aren't enough people who want to work in warehouses, and the people who work there want to be paid more. Putting robots in those warehouses alongside people, which is the trend, got accelerated. This is great. You put the robots in the places that are higher risk or the tasks that are easier. You put people in the parts of the tasks that require more flexibility. Robots are not as flexible as people for a while, quite a while. You could pay them a lot more. It's already started. Amazon's raised pay. It was not just them. Henry Ford raised the pay of all his workers famously in the 20s, declaring that he wanted to have workers who could afford to buy the products that he made. (laughs) And could, could the really good news mean that the cloud revolution will save or preserve the American led world order? Because another point of despair among a lot of people at the moment is that we think we're seeing the inevitable rise of China and the inevitable decline of America. Whereas I think you argue that America lends itself to leading the cloud revolution. Is that another source of hope in the book? It is with, you know, what feels always compelled to make the caveat. And I, I say this, as you probably know, in my preface, that it's, it's possible for governments to Sovietize any economy. We know that because the Soviets did it. The great wealth expansion from 1920 through the 20, you know, to Y2K, Russian people are just as smart as anybody else, obviously. They did not enjoy the expansion that happened in the United Kingdom or in the United States because they Sovietized their economy. They got wealthier, but not anywhere as much as, on average, as people in Britain and the United States and Canada. Why? Well, we know the answer. So I feel like I have to stipulate that because the politics matter enormously. I worked in the White House Science Office under President Reagan, and I worked at some in Canadian parliamentary committees back in the day, as they say, I'm very, very keenly aware of the salience and importance of getting the politics right. At the same time, I had in my head when I wrote this book, 
if you think the future is a lot like the recent past, you don't have any sense of optimism or what new things can be done, it sort of is enervating. It does the opposite of energizing. You really have to have a sense of what's going on there. The fact that the United States is in a great struggle with China is not unlike many people have written, the great struggle with the Soviet Empire during the Cold War. It's not as hot militarily, but it might get that way, but certainly culturally, economically it is. I take that as a good thing because competition energizes people. I see that as a good thing for both countries, particularly for the United States. I think the United States culturally, structurally, is better prepared and is not only for what the cloud revolution is doing, but is actually creating it. So the epicenter of most, not all, but most of the technologies and firms that are propelling us into this new era are in the United States. Not all. Germans, Britons, and you know, people in Taiwan and South Korea are doing a lot, of course. But if you map out the epicenter, it's clearly in the United States. And if you look at the demographic trends, which matter a lot, demography tells you a lot about the future in terms of the age of the workforce and imagination that often comes with youth, right? Risk-taking, not always, but often. China's at a disadvantage. They're on a downslope. In 2020, they crossed a really unpleasant Rubicon, in my view. They entered negative population growth for the first time in their history. The United States is in positive population growth territory still. Many European countries, as you know, are in negative population growth territory. This is Mm. not hopeful. The United States, by being in positive economic growth territory, by being the epicenter of much of the innovation, has some inherent advantages. This is very different, though, than saying, well, you know, China, for example, makes most of the world's solar panels, for example. Yes, they decided to subsidize that industry. Turns out most people don't realize this, I guess. It's not hard to make solar panels. They're actually pretty easy to make. So they've chased the commoditization of a relatively easy-to-make product. But the most advanced microprocessors, the most advanced inference engines, which we stupidly call artificial intelligence, (laughs) really it's a dopey phrase, but... Most of that, though, innovation on advanced computing, most of it's in the United States, some of it's in the UK, you know, a little bit in Italy and in France, but it's really the heavy epicenter of the most advanced computing and software development is in North America. That's the future. The future is not in what we invented yesterday. Yes, it matters. Who makes those cars and creates jobs? Those things matter. But I'm talking about what propels the growth on the edge of the future. It's pretty hard to not look at the United States and see that that's where the home is. And then if we can get our politics right, and I don't mean this just Democrat versus Republican, I mean this in terms of if Democrats want to make it easy for entrepreneurs to start businesses and grow and not have punitive taxes to drive people away and punitive regulations, great, I'm on board. Obviously, I worked for Reagan, so I I have a self-proclaimed identity in terms of where I lean. (laughs) It's impossible to avoid that. But in the 90s, rather in the 80s, people were telling Reagan that the United States needed to mount a mass of federal subsidies for computing because Japan was about to take over the computing future. Japan's government had decided to spend, in today's dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars subsidizing the computer industry to overtake the United States. IBM at that time had utter global dominance and mainframes. And Reagan uh, would have none of it. And it's not because he didn't believe in technology of the future. He, and I'm paraphrasing. I was not in the meeting. They didn't let kids in his meetings. I was a kid. Only the adults were allowed the meetings with the president in the, yeah. 
You pre- were a married kid, as you said. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, I got married at 10, you know, and had kids at 12. <laughs> it's kind of like in Shakespeare's time. Anyway, but he, he said, I have no idea who's going to win this battle, but I do know one thing. None of you in this room know. And it, if we fund it, we're picking the winners and losers. And it was only a few years later. It was, I think, after that, it was uh, two or three years later that he gave an award to Steve Jobs, a Medal of Freedom Award for being an innovator. So in 1983, 84, if you give that kind of award to somebody, think about this, 1980s, 81. (laughs) No one had any idea that Apple would become what it is today, a trillion-dollar company. So what Reagan wanted to do was unleash the apples of the world. There's going to be more companies like Apple in our 20s. The idea that they own the future forever, or Amazon or Facebook, is naive. Just take a look at the big corporations at any time over modern history. They come and go. Some survive. Most don't. Because innovators do new things. We're on the cusp of that kind of sort of huge inflection in new kinds of things. I should add, not just for computing. I mean, my book's about machines and materials, about things like physical robots, anthropomorphic robots, and automated drones for delivery, and and about new kinds of materials that are self-cleaning and self-healing. All the things around us are material-based. We haven't had any real materials revolution since the age of chemistry was launched 140 years ago. We're living in the middle of a materials revolution. It's sort of boring. It's not a computing sounding, so no one doesn't get much coverage in the popular press because it's a yawn. You soon as you say the word material science, who would bother? Well, you know, I mean, if I could make a biocompatible band-aid that could tell whether your wound is healing and then communicate that to your body center network, and when you choose to have it mediated in the cloud to talk to your doctor or your medical providers, all that's been enabled by a profound revolution of materials at the front end, not to computing at the other end. Mark, we better wrap it up there, but that was um, fascinating. And congratulations on the book. And you've made the book and this podcast have made me feel a lot cheerier about the future. <laughs> so I'm very grateful to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. We could we could do a full dystopian uh, one later, if you like. We'll do it in the metaverse. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. thanks Mark thank you thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano if you enjoyed it please subscribe and if you really enjoyed it please leave us a star rating preferably five stars and a review